long novels, those of 700 pages or more, seem to be making a comeback. I mean, that's the conclusion you would reach if you looked at the latest uh, bestseller list and the publisher's list that are coming out. You may have remembered uh, a couple years ago when they did a a bidding war for uh, Garth Risk Halberg's debut novel, City on Fire. Knopf Publishing ended up winning that bid, paying him nearly $2 million for his manuscript. But that book just joins a list of others. Red or Dead by David Peace, 720 pages. The Goldfinch, Donna Tartt, 784 pages. The Luminaries, Eleanor Canton, 832 pages. And then The Kills by uh, Richard House there at 1,002 pages. Now, that's good news for those who like to relax by reading, who enjoy a long tail, or someone who needs to kind of battle out, balance out their uh, Twitter or X feed. But at the same time, there are reviewers who say that these novels are just bloated and need to be pruned. I mean, you always have critics. Criticism is easy. And then, um, but, you know, it's still, if it's, a, it's a good experience to read a long novel if the story can sustain, uh, if, if, if the, the, the story can be sustained, sustain the length of it. I agree with um, Kirsty Gunn, who said that these books should change us, um, make us different than when we were when we started, make us somehow bigger ourselves. But at the same time, I would argue that small, tightly written books can have that same effect on people, make them bigger ourselves. Case in point... The Gospel of Mark. Mark is famously brief, the shortest of all the Gospels. Look at our Gospel lesson for today. In just seven verses, Mark covers the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, the beheading of John the Baptist, the beginning of his missionary work of preaching, and gives us his mission statement. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark moves from event to event or story to story so quickly that his favorite adverb seems to be immediately. He uses that word or a cognate of it 41 times in his gospel lesson. With only 16 chapters, the book of Mark can be read by a determined reader in one sitting. But yet, in that 16 chapters, there is enough there to uh, tell us that even if we didn't have Matthew or Luke, we would know who Jesus was and what he came to do. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Many scholars thought, you know, that Mark was probably uh, um, the first gospel to be written. Um, They were saying that Matthew and Luke borrowed from Mark, but that could be further from the truth. Mark's gospel reflects the preaching of St. Peter in Rome, and St. Peter's preaching style was pretty rapid fire. 
Mark, even though he's lengthwise the shortest, actually those stories that he does include adds more detail to those stories than the other, than Matthew or Luke do. So Mark is um, long enough to make us different, somehow uh, better than ourselves, but yet detailed enough so that he leaves no doubt that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Mark gives us six points, big points, that he says that we need to, believe, to be heard and believe. And the six points are brief, like Mark is there. It's not going to add to the length of the sermon. So point number one, Mark identifies Jesus as the Son of God. Now, in Mark's days, son of God just meant a person on a divine mission, you know. Uh, basically, you know, you can relate that to Greek mythology with Hercules being the son of Zeus on a divine mission. Except that Mark says that this son of God was actually God in the flesh. That Jesus came from God to do God's bidding. Mark uses that phrase, son of God, in the opening sentences of his gospel. But then he lets other people throughout his gospel confirm that statement. Such as today, in the baptism of Jesus, or in the transfiguration you heard last week, you have a divine voice saying, this is my son whom I love. A couple of weeks ago, when Jesus cast out the unclean spirit in the synagogue, what does that unclean spirit say? We know who you are. You are the Son of God. When he was being interrogated, the high priest asked Jesus if he is the blessed one of God. And Jesus says, I am. And then at Jesus' crucifixion, Mark tells us of the Roman centurion that after he sees Jesus die, the centurion said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So we get the message. Mark is telling us that Jesus isn't just a great man or a, a great prophet or a great leader who changed history. No, Mark is telling us that Jesus is the one specially sent by God to call people to repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. No time to waste. Second, Mark declares that Jesus is the Messiah. He connects Jesus to the promised one of the Old Testament. He uses that uh, phrase, uh, um, uses the Greek word for Messiah, Christ, in his opening sentences as well. Here, while Christ or Messiah has lost some of its meaning or usefulness to us, it still tells us that Jesus was the promised Savior in, from the Old Testament who would come to redeem God's people, to save them from their sins. Point number three. Mark recognizes Jesus as a unique teacher. Again, our gospel lesson from a couple of weeks ago. Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. 
You know, when the scribes, they were the teachers at that time, the Bible teachers at that time. But when they taught, they would often quote other teachers or other rabbis to support their point. But when Jesus taught, he would say, but this is what I say. He taught as one who had authority because he was God himself. God in the flesh. And so when Jesus tells us about that he came to deliver God's people, that promise is more certain than the ground on which we walk. Point four. See, I told you they were short. Mark understands the ministry of Jesus is calling us to discipleship. In Mark 8.34, Jesus says, If anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross or deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The words follow me there don't just mean um, getting up and walking behind Jesus wherever he walked. Follow me means being the same with, doing the same things, acting the same way, living the same way with him. In other words, Jesus is saying, as I am obedient to my Father, so you ought to be. Because the way of the cross, even though it is painful and there's suffering involved, this is the only way to eternal life. Point five, Mark shows Jesus' death as the will of God. Earlier I said, you know, that Mark, in the events that he does include, adds more details to it than others do. This is one of those cases of that. He adds a detail of Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane where others don't. Mark has Jesus saying, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. By that, Mark is telling us that Jesus' crucifixion on the cross wasn't just merely a perversion of justice. It was more than that. It was God's will. It was God's plan to redeem his people, a perfect person to ransom the sins of all people. And then point six, Mark understands Jesus' act, uh, or Jesus' death, as an atoning act. Here again, Mark has Jesus saying to us, saying to us, if anyone is going to be my disciple, they would follow me, but also that he came not to be served, but to to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So clearly, Mark saw Jesus' death on the cross as the seminal atoning act of God's redemption for his people. Either you believe and are saved, or you reject and are condemned. So these six truths that Mark points out are helpful for us on our Lenten journey because they encompass God's plan of salvation 
before the world. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who calls people to repentance and faith. God knew that we couldn't be trusted uh, even in one small detail with our own salvation. I mean, we can't even be trusted with taking the first step, as some are fond of saying. God had to do it all through Jesus Christ because Jesus was the sinless Son of God who made the perfect sacrifice. He had to be God. Only Jesus could resist the temptations of the devil. Only Jesus could usher in the reign and rule of God's kingdom. Only Jesus could walk the way of suffering and death. Lent, for us then, becomes following this Jesus to the cross. There was no shortcut in God's plan of salvation, no easy way to defeat death. God sent his best for you and for me. And in Mark's galloping style, he tells us of this good news of Jesus, this gospel that he says must be preached and proclaimed. Jesus became servant for us to change us so that we may be different than when we were when we started somehow bigger ourselves now you also may recall how mark gospel kind of ends abruptly the women on easter morning go to the tomb they see that it's open an angel tells them that jesus is not here they're terrified and they run away. That's it. It stops right there. Oh, if you look in the Bible, you'll see some verses afterwards, but almost everyone says those verses were added later by someone other than Mark. Why would Mark end it in such a way? Why would there be such an abrupt ending? Why would he leave it so open? Because after telling us who Jesus is, in marshalling out the evidence and the witnesses of others, the reader is left to either confess with the church that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world, or to reject that and die. Remember, Mark's purpose in writing the gospel was to change the reader so that we would become like Christ, disciples in our daily lives. And after reading gospel, we understand that it can make us different than when we started, make us somehow bigger ourselves. That's the power of God's Word. The power that Mark says needs to be preached and proclaimed the power that Mark knew personally in his own life that he saw on the missionary journeys. And that same word goes with us into Lent to change us into being servants of our Lord.